0: com slash weightloss. Welcome to Smart Muslima podcast. Inshallah, if you find this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and tell your friends and family about Smart Muslima. Also, good news, I have a newsletter and that's how we can stay in touch. To subscribe, please go to smartmuslima.com details are also in the podcast notes. In the newsletter I'll be sharing my book recommendations, productivity tips and online courses that I've created and also information about a new book that I'm writing called Smart Single Muslimer. Inshallah it will help you to transform the way you approach love and relationships.
2: The French state has for a long time maintained a peculiar policy of radical secularism. Under this doctrine, culture and religion are secondary to the liberal neutral state. Citizens of all colours and creeds are in theory treated equally and make their way in society adhering to the values of the republic. In reality, there is nothing neutral about the society the French have established. The six million strong Muslims of France have endured marginalisation, are erased from public life, their religion traduced by politicians and pundits alike. A ban on hijab remains in place in schools and universities, ostensibly to protect children from overbearing customs. And on some beaches in France, we have seen the undignified sight of French police officers demanding women wearing a burkini have to undress to fit into what they call French culture. In another time and to another community, we would be calling it out as the unsavoury actions of a fascistic regime. In recent weeks, Emmanuel Macron, with an eye on next year's municipal elections and the national elections in 2022, has talked about Islam being in crisis all over the world and the need to fight what he calls Islamic separatism. His interior minister doubling down on his idiocy claimed that having separate halal meat shelves in a supermarket was a sign that Muslims wanted to live separate lives. Certainly, Macron's current position reflects the unease he feels with losing out to Marine Le Pen's National Front Party. And like many European politicians, maligning Muslims and Islam is a vote winner. In this malignant atmosphere, there is also the spectre of militancy. The provocations of Charlie Ebdo's drawings of the Messenger of Allah, and its relentless campaign against the Islamic faith, has given some the licence to respond with violence. The killing of Samuel Paty, a schoolteacher, and the murders earlier today in Nice provide fodder to the coercive policies of the state – and play into the hands of those who want a Europe-wide clampdown on Islam. To help us understand the current crisis in France, I am delighted to have on the Thinking Muslim podcast, Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Dr Yasser Qadi is well known in the Muslim community. He is a scholar and since 2001, he has served as Dean of Academic Affairs at the Al-Maghrib Institute, with a centre in Houston, Texas. He also taught in the Religious Studies Department at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. He is currently the resident scholar of the East Piano Islamic Center in Texas. Certainly, the interview looks at a range of interrelated issues, and it may be that some listeners will disagree with some aspects of it. However, I am convinced that if this one to progress and move forwards, we are going to have to find a way to listen and not speak past one another. We have to learn to find a language that includes all views as long as they have an Islamic basis. I have said it before, but there is much more that unites us than divides us. And too many Muslim groups and associations create artificial bunkers from which they spend their time and energy pointing fingers at one another and accusing one another instead of addressing the real issues to enable progress. Dr. Qadi has raised some searching questions over the past few weeks about French policy towards Muslims, violence perpetrated by a minority of those Muslims, and he argues the potential for the French model to be exported to other countries where Muslims are a minority. I asked Dr. Qadi about the Islamic justifications for violence, how we should defend the honour of the Messenger of Allah the position of minority communities, the role of scholarship in politics and raising awareness about these issues. And we also speak about the current problem with many Islamic scholars who choose to remain silent instead of speaking truth to power, lest they lose their position, usually gained from political patronage or they lose their following. Inevitably, the fawny subject of scholars and despotic rulers comes up and Dr Qadi gives his frank opinion on the matter. Just a quick message for our regular listeners and indeed our new ones. We have had a great response to our Arab Spring series and I plan to continue the shows. But as a British Prime Minister once said, events, dear boy, events. I've recorded a great interview with the Arab Spring activist Iyad al-Baghdadi, which inshallah will be out soon. Also for those asking about the next Thinking Muslim course, we have put together another free five-week course exploring Islam and liberalism. Specifically for university students, together with the University Islamic Societies of Soas, Edinburgh, and San Diego. More information can be found on our website, thinkingMuslim.com. Shukriya, Sakhadi. Assalamu alaikum wa wabarakatuh. And it's uh, a pleasure to have you on the Thinking Muslim podcast.
3: Wa alaikum assalam wa It's my pleasure to be on your show.
2: Now, I would like to explore the situation in France, the speech of Macron calling for an Islamic reformation, the killing of Samuel Paty, the events that happened afterwards. I also want to explore the Islamic context to all of this, looking at the Ahkam Sharia pertaining to minorities. But I think it would be remiss of me not to mention the events currently unfolding in, in Nice. Yet again, France is subject to another set of murders. Initial reports suggest that Muslims may be involved. You said that after the killing of Samuel Paty, that Muslims should stop condemning. Yet after today's attacks, you did condemn these crimes. Uh, but doesn't that condemnation imply some level of culpability on behalf of the Muslim community? Can you explain your thinking behind this, Sheikh?
3: Uh, to be precise, it wasn't that I said we should stop condemning unconditionally. Uh, I was contextualizing and saying that Uh, that we need to understand where that anger is stemming from. And I did, even in that khutbah, I explicitly said that what that individual did was wrong. So we need to be a little bit more careful because we have so many different demographics we're dealing with. And it's well nigh impossible to uh, say something that's not going to offend one demographics, which means we need to forget about offending and not. We need to think a little bit more about speaking the truth, speaking the reality. So we are now caught between a rock and a hard place, right? We have on the one side, um, our own Muslim community that has been burnt and scarred, that has been, you know, our Prophet Muslim has been ridiculed and threatened. They've just been completely, you know, just rinsed out for the last decade and a half, always having to condemn, as you said, uh, pointing out, always having to be on the defensive. And they're simply tired. They really are tired and they have every right to be tired for how long are we going to be expected to, uh, uh, as you said, condemn or apologize on behalf of somebody that has nothing to do with us? That is a valid point. On the flip side, you have the majority of Western inhabitants who are in a totally different paradigm, right? And from their perspective, there's not enough condemnation. From their perspective, uh, it is as if the narrative that is being fed to them by Macron by Fox News by Sky by all of these networks you know by Murdoch and his crew the the, the narrative of radical islam the narrative of you know muslims and islam has an inherent problem with violence and even the more broad minded amongst them even the more tolerant amongst them are saying okay the majority of muslims are not terrorists but the majority of terrorists are muslims they have bought that narrative right mm-hmm. even the more broad minded that is and it should be in its own way, terrifying to us as the minority. If even the more tolerant amongst them are in fact intolerant, right? If even the more educated amongst them have such uneducated views, then we as Muslims really do need to think long and hard about the predicament we find ourselves in. And we need to work to challenge the narrative of the mainstream because we have to look, we feel our safety in numbers. We go to our massage, we go to our conferences, And we're surrounded by tens of thousands of Muslims. But let us never forget, we are a small, minuscule minority in America, especially, and in England as well. When it comes to the overall country, our statistics really are, you know, quite minuscule and small. And that means we need to stop thinking within our own bubble and understand the broader narrative, even if we disagree with it, and then work to counter that narrative. That's what I've been trying to do since the days of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That's what I've been trying to do to present that balanced middle. That's, of course, my opinion is a balanced middle. Obviously, I have critics from both sides. But that's what I've been trying to do consistently, which is to call out acts of violence when they occur from our side as being illegitimate, as being things that should not be done. But to always emphasize the context, to make the bigger issue not the violence from within, but the causes of violence from without, right? That's what I've consistently done since, you know, of returning from Medina. And remember, I came back and al-Qaeda was at its pinnacle. And then al-Qaeda disappeared and ISIS came up, and that was seven, eight years. And now we're seeing yet another, uh, you know, issue and controversy arising. And throughout all of these, we have to balance between... Uh, The insensitivities of the broader public, their you know belief and notion, because realize the majority of French and British are not Macron. They understand that Macron might be a little bit crass and crude, but they're still sympathetic overall to that paradigm. Right? Let us be again pragmatic and real here. It's not as if they are ardent supporters of being rude and obnoxious to Muslims, but they're feeling hey, this minority needs to be put in check. This minority is is doing things that any other minority is not doing. We need to understand their narrative and then work to change it. The way that's going to happen is by getting out of our safety zone and bubble from within our own communities and to acknowledge that, you know what, they have been misfed, a series of lies, a narrative that is incorrect. In order to battle that, we're going to have to say things that i don't like to apologize for what happened i don't it's not my business to do that having said that by the way let's also be fair here when a random you know brown person does something uh, in the name of his you know uh, his um, what uh, in the name of his let's say he's part of a mafia gang or something that's understandable i don't have to say anything but suppose a brown person a muslim suppose a you know uh, arab or a pakistani does something in the name of islam Do we not have some responsibility when he's dragged in my faith and your faith? Do we not have some? Because again, and that is a valid point that when a a racist does something uh, in the name of KKK, let's say, right, in the name of whatever it is, it's understood that he's using that, that platform. If that platform does not associate, if the KKK does not say that, hey, we might have our vision, but we don't endorse violence, we may legitimately blame the KKK that they did not do that. The same applies for us that if the religion is used explicitly, then there is a small responsibility, collective, fard not farda'in. There's a small responsibility on the leaders, on the movers, on the intellectual, you know, uh, figureheads to basically say, hey, guys, he might have used our name, but that's not the faith that I follow. Don't you see that that is also a sensible uh, you know, response. We have to not be so emotional that we lose track of of, of, of reality. And Allah knows best in this regard.
2: Do we also have to uh, conclude that there is a, a strain or a narrative within the Muslim community uh, that uses Islam to justify such actions? I mean, let's look at the murder of Samuel Patti. Uh, we now know that he was killed uh, after he showed the Charlie Hebdo uh, cartoons ridiculing the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We know that as Muslims, uh, we love the Prophet ﷺ more than anyone after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And our history is replete with such devotion towards the Messenger. So we have the reverence we have towards the Prophet ﷺ, but also we have the revelation. So can I ask you as an Islamic scholar, how does Islam ask us to respond to the uh, defamation of the Prophet ﷺ? So
3: again, as somebody who tries my best to be very accurate and always present the truth without sugarcoating, we have to acknowledge that we do have uh, two sets of of principles or paradigms depending on our context. That there is indeed a Meccan phase and a Medinan phase. Now, my paradigm is that in this issue, the Medinan phase does not abrogate the Meccan phase. So I have to put that disclaimer here because there are You know, especially the radicals, that's one of their main points here, is that that strand of Islam, which is a minority, it's a very small minority, but it does exist. Their claim is that the laws of Medina in totality abrogate all of the laws of Mecca. And this is a controversy that actually does exist from the past, it's nothing uh, new. the, the famous verse of the sword ayat to say, for example, if you read the classical books of Tafsir, there is a controversy. Does that verse abrogate all of the verses pertaining to turn the other cheek and you know, let, let them do what they're doing and Allah will deal with them? Because again, in, Me- in Mecca, no Muslim committed any act of vigilante justice against those that persecuted them, right? There was not a single act because the prophethood was in charge, right? So nobody's gonna go and do something the prophethood doesn't allow them to do. So in the Meccan phase, you have, you know, Sumayya and Yasir being tortured to death in front of the eyes of Ammar. The whole Sahaba know about this. You have Bilal being dragged in the streets of Medina and, you know, torture being done. You have multiple cases of beating up dozens of Sahaba were, were, were beaten almost to death, including Ibn Mas'ud. Abu Bakr as siddiq radiallahu anh, was beaten and, and had to recover for weeks in his house. Not a single Sahabi raised his hands and then attacked Abu Jahl or secretly assassinated one of the leaders of the Quraysh or did anything that would cause more propagation in this regard. This is the, phase, uh, sorry, the Meccan phase. You have, no exaggeration, almost a hundred verses Almost a hundred that t- teach the Muslims that let them do what they're doing. Teach the Muslims, Turn away from the jahil. Teach the Muslims that when they do this, just say salam. Teach the Muslims that, إِنِّي مَعَكُمْ مَنَطَعًا. Just wait, just wait. Allah will deal with you. And I'm also waiting. You wait and I wait. The both of us are going to wait. So all of these verses are there. That's the Meccan phase. Now, obviously, in the Medina phase, Muslims have now political power, and there's a very different set of rules. You have civil society, you have order, you have law. In a Muslim society, can uh, Allah and his messenger be publicly ridiculed, uh, obnoxiously, you know, literally the, the goal is to provoke the Muslim community, obviously and i'm definitely uh uh, you know not going to sugarcoat this mainstream islamic law in fact ibn taymiyyah says by unanimous consensus this would not be allowed in a muslim land and why should it be allowed in a muslim land for a person to go into public and intentionally want to provoke the sentiments the sacredness there should be an element of sacredness that uh, and this is common sense like we're not talking about a christian saying i'm a christian we're not talking about the abuse that is happening in various countries of the Blasphemy law, which i 'm also against we 're talking about example of the charlie abdo cartoons we 're talking about blatant provoca- uh, provocation that there should be no two opinions about that the intent is to ridicule the intent is to incite. I have no qualms in saying that in ideal Muslim societies, there should be a red line for all faith traditions. The Quran even says that don't insult other false gods. You know, a Muslim should not go and intentionally want to provoke. Yes, debate and dialogue in a good manner, but uh, to intend to insult and it's uh, common sense when that occurs, Islamic law is against that. Now, the question here is that, Should we apply any laws of Medina in societies and situations that might be more, you know, uh, akin to Mecca? Well, we know, uh, the Muslim community is well aware that the bulk of our scholarship is against this. That Alhamdulillah, mainstream, you know, Sunni fiqh and Shia fiqh as well and all mainstream movements of the religion, that we understand that in minority situations, we do not enact vigil- vigilante justice, that the harms that will come are far more than any potential good that you think is going to happen. And we actually have precedence in this regard. When the Muslims were in Abyssinia, in the time of the Prophet people left the faith, murtad, there was ridda that took place there. And no one did anything to uh, the murtad in the lands of Abyssinia. We do not have the right to enact uh, punishments in minority situations, even if we think that they are justified in majority situations. And this is alhamdulillah, we thank Allah, this is the bulk of the community. This is our scholarship that is universally respected. Are there dissenting voices? Of course there are. Who are they? Well, let's look at their credentials and let's look at their background. They are all people who belong to these fringe, very small, minuscule jihadist movements, and none of them were reputable scholars before the advent of these modern movements. This is a point that I used to make back in uh, the 2005s all the way throughout al-Qaeda and ISIS, and I still make it now. Those minority of voices that support and justify these types of vigilante actions, they were unknown before the advent of these vigilante actions. They were not established, bona fide, qualified, ulama, respected clerics. They were unknown. And that in, 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 in and of itself is an indication of uh, the eccentric uh, views that are held by these people.
2: How do we reconcile your understanding with the Islamic duty, uh, my understanding it's Fard al-Kifaya, to enjoin al maruf and forbid al-Munkar? Uh, surely we have a duty to forbid all evil, uh, even with our hands, as the Hadith mentions, that if we see a munker, we need to remove it with our hands as one of the stages of uh, of rebutting that munker, repelling that munker. How can we understand this Islamic duty in relation to Muslims living in the West and seeing almost on a daily basis the sanctities of this religion uh, being ridiculed in the press and in the media and in wider political circles.
3: So, I mean, this is something that is well known. I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah and others, they, they mentioned this, that uh, you weigh the pros and the cons. You look at who you are. You look at the, the, the context that you're in. And you see which of these three, as the Prophet ﷺ said, if you can change it with your hands, you should do so. If not, then with your tongue. And if not, then with your heart. This, this is something that varies from time to place to culture and even to individual, right? Mm. So even in the same time and place and culture, two people standing next to each other might have different levels of which one each one should do depending on their own status and prestige, their own protection, their own, their own status in society and their, and their own responsibilities. And therefore, this is something that every single community with its own ulama and scholars is going to decide. You cannot expect the Uyghurs of China, may Allah protect them and have mercy on them. You cannot expect the Uyghurs of China to act the same way that we are acting in America. Neither can you expect somebody in America to act the same way as, let's say, in Medina or or, or in Mecca if they see an evil as well, a blatant or public evil. So each uh, of these circumstances is contextual-based. Who gets to decide this? Local scholars, the local clergy. They will tell you that to what level should we go? And it is, of course, as I said, even these radical, these, you know, people that justify these types of, of actions and whatnot, they cannot be consistent. Are they going to stop the drinking of alcohol in the very cities that they live in? Are they going to stop the nudity that is prevalent everywhere? Are they going to stop you know, any other type of sin that Islam considers to be a moral sin? They cannot and they should not physically get involved because the, the Muslims of Mecca as well would see worse evil. They saw idolatry in front of the Kaaba. There is no worse sin to commit than shirk and there is no worse place to commit it in mecca and there is nothing more sacrilegious than to have 300 false gods encircling the Kaaba, Not once did a Muslim come and tip an idol over. Not once did a Muslim come and destroy an idol. They didn't use the story of Ibrahim alayhi which is revealed in Makkah. They did not use the Abrahamic story, right? And then derive from it that, hey, we need to now destroy idols. Ibrahim alayhi was a case that Allah جل, of course, that was a special case for his time that Allah chose him to you know manifest his prophethood in that manner. The Muslims of Makkah did not do anything To even idolatry in front of the Kaaba. Do you think then, therefore, that we should have more right to then enforce our version of laws in America or in France or in or in London? Not at all. We will repel the evil that we see with our tongues. If you listen to my lectures throughout Al Qaeda and ISIS era, I was always, without exception, bringing up American foreign policy as a primary cause of those jihadist movements. I, I went. I gave a number of lectures that went viral that once again, yes, I criticized the beheading of journalists. I criticized a lot of the uh, 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 errant views that al Qaeda and ISIS had and the killing of uh, civilians and whatnot. But I never stopped speaking of the broader picture, which is these movements are a reaction to your invasions. The same applies over here now, that what we're seeing now is wrong. What these people are doing is wrong but we cannot ignore the provocation. We cannot ignore, l- l- this is what I call it, asymmetric warfare. Okay? You have the state on one side, you have the media, you have the president on one side that is prodding and poking and, and, and provoking and wanting to incite continuously, demonizing the entire faith. And on the other side, you have a bunch of citizens like us expected to monitor each and every individual. That's impossible. This is asymmetric warfare. It is not possible for us to monitor each and every individual within our own ranks. It is the government that should think about its future course of action, not as a threat to, uh, you know, for a future attack, but as a sensible policy, because the government is supposed to represent all of its citizens, including the Muslim citizens. When the government takes it on itself to divide, when the government Intentionally wishes to demonize 10% of France of, of Paris is Muslim or I think 15% of Paris is Muslim when the government is intentionally inciting that type of hatred the government is not neutral this is not laïcité. this is not pure secularism where it has taken a step back no in this case secularism has become an excuse to be anti-Muslim therefore even when this one attack happens or three attacks or two attacks we criticize those attacks but we always jump to the broader narrative and Allah knows that this, is the way, this has been my philosophy from the beginning.
2: Now you mentioned there that we should respond by using our voice um, is that an adequate response to these deliberate provocations uh, we're told in effect turn the other cheek. Now some accuse modern Muslim scholarship of promoting a Muslim pacifism ready to excuse all oppression and all munker. Um, do you think that, that that accusation is a fair accusation?
3: Um, It depends on what what type of of pacifism that you're you're requesting, like I've never again, again, you're talking to me, I've never, and you can check all of my videos, I have never once criticized uh, Afghan Muslims for defending their homeland, Iraqi Muslims for defending their homeland, never once, I have been very precise in what I say. Okay, I have criticized and I continue to criticize Western Muslims getting involved in militancy or even at the time, Western Muslims traveling to Syria at the time, because I said, you're simply adding to the confusion. You don't know who's on which side. And history has shown that what I said was was valid. It was a complete mess. And there were third parties getting involved and there were sinister motives, et cetera, et cetera. I did criticize Western involvement. I never once criticized locals defending themselves. So I'm not promoting past pacifism across the globe not at all but every single community needs to look at its own interests and we in the west we have our own interests and we have over uh what was what was it? i calculated that a few years ago 50 million muslims living in western lands i forgot the exact statistic but around 50 million muslims living in western lands what is our survival what do we need to do across the western world the, the life of a muslim in western lands is also sacred as is the life of muslim in eastern land simply because a muslim is born in america doesn't make that muslim's life any less sacred than a muslim born in iraq we have to stop romanticizing foreign causes we need to yes look globally but also act Domestically and locally, and from a local perspective, from a uh, uh, a perspective of over uh, uh, ten million Muslims in America, I forgot how many in England seven, eight million in England, something like this, right? Four
2: million, four, yeah,
3: four million. But it's still higher percentage. You guys are higher percentages in this, right? So we are less than one percent, and you guys are, I think, three, four percent, or two percent, whatever the population. So yeah. looking at all of these, we need to look at what is for our best interest as well. We need to preserve Islam in our progeny as well, and this is a part of the goals of the Sharia. So I am not promoting global pacifism But I am saying If you have chosen to live in England With a British passport They do allow a religiosity That is difficult to find in the Middle East And I don't have any problem saying I didn't choose to migrate I was born here Now that I'm born here I have chosen to live here It is my choice I have the opportunity To go to other lands and countries But I have traveled the globe I have lived in Saudi Arabia For almost half my life Almost 20 years I lived in Saudi Arabia I'm not criticizing any other country. I'm saying for me, I have made my choice and I'm very content with the choice that I made. I have the freedom to be a Muslim and to speak out against my own government when it is involved in wrong. And I thank Allah for those, for those freedoms. And I don't see any religious problem in doing what I'm doing. And I am con- my conscience is clear uh, in, in what I have done. But that's my decision. Every Muslim should make up their choice.
0: This episode is brought to you by farhatameen.com, a website that specialises in Islamic stickers, Muslim activity books, as well as Ramadan and e-decorations. Wholesale and reseller inquiries are also welcome. So visit farhatameen.com today.
2: What about the argument raised by journalists like Mustafa Aikov of the New York Times, who argues that Muslims in the West that benefit from the general freedoms... uh, can't have it both ways. They have to accept the same freedom when Islam is being criticized and when Islam is being ridiculed. How would you respond to this argument?
3: Um, That's his position, that they can't have it both ways. I don't see why not, because uh, I don't see the problem in claiming that when we are citizens of a particular country, Yes, we must abide by, not necessarily respect, but abide by the laws of that land. And if we are that opposed to the laws of that land, then we should go and leave that country. That's very simple to me, I don't see a problem with that. But why, why should we expect the entire globe to follow the principles of the paradigm of any one locality? Why are American values universal? Why are British laws to be extrapolated around the globe? Why, why can't I say that look, As an American, I am required to respect, not respect necessarily, but you get my point, but to abide by the laws of the land. Even if I don't agree with them, fair enough, deal, I agree with that. But why should Saudi Arabia have the laws of America? Why should the constitution made by the founding fathers be applicable in Timbuktu? Why? Why can't every society and every nation decide what is best for itself? I fully understand that I've made a deal, and that deal is if I want to remain in this country and the law says something, I have the right to appeal it. I have the right to fight it in court. I have the right to hate it in my heart. But I do not have the right to become violent against it. Otherwise, I should leave this and go to another place and, and not call this land my land.
2: But I think the argument of Mustafa Aikul is uh, a Muslim living in France who lives under this system of radical secularism, of laissez uh, they uh, willingly accepted citizenship of this country or their fathers or their forefathers willingly accepted citizenship of the country, knowing that the country has a a very strong aversion towards the church, a very strong view about mocking religion, a very a, a strong sensibility uh, of freedom uh, and freedom of expression, and that comes through in their comedies, it comes through in the Charlie Hebdo magazine, it comes through. You know, if you, you just have to visit France and you see that on a daily basis. So should a Muslim in France, you know, if I understand the logic of your, of your argument, should a Muslim in France then just accept and respect that that is the country in which they live? And now they've got to accept that the French are going to mock religion in exchange for other freedoms they may receive by view of the fact that they are citizens of France.
3: I don't like the usage of your word accept.
2: Mm.
3: I don't like accept because accept implies a, a, a level of admittance that this is correct and valid. I will say that Muslims in France should understand that the laws of the land, the culture of that land is very different than the culture that they want. And if they wish to live there, they will have to learn to not retaliate violently when these types of things happen. They have the right to get angry. They have the right to criticize. They have the right to respond back in kind, which means op-eds, editorials, go on television and blast the double standards. Point out that in France, you know, as far as I'm aware, I'm not a French law expert, but I'm reading all of these news that you're reading. In France, it is illegal to desecrate the French flag. Right. You cannot wipe your behind with the French flag or else you're going to be fined. In France, the Charlie Hebdo newspaper itself fired a a, a cartoonist when he did too many anti-Semitic cartoons about the Holocaust. This was around a decade and a half ago. Right. Pre-9-11. So this is what Muslims should be doing. I'm not saying accept it, but I'm saying understand that it is a different culture. And yes, you will have to bargain. You will have to make a deal that for certain greater freedoms, and there's nothing wrong with those freedoms, for economic privilege. And there's nothing wrong with safety for your family. We need to stop guilt-tripping Muslims. We all want to live decent lives in this world and in the Akhirah. We have to choose the, the, the pros and cons. And look, you can live your life in America without really getting involved with these racist and xenophobic. Once in a while, you'll see something, but your iman is not in itself being affected. Nobody's putting a gun to your head and saying, don't pray to Allah. Don't pray five times a day in America, at least that's not happening. And... Until that happens, I mean, uh, if you are really forced to do shirk or kufr or major sins in this case, we should start talking about Hijrah. I'm not qualified to talk about that for the French situation. I leave it to the scholars of France to do that. And again, I reiterate, our loyalties are to our creator, not to our nation-state. I've said this on American national stage, and I will reiterate this. Our loyalties are to our creator. If the constitution of this land allows me to maintain that loyalty, I shall abide by the constitution, and I will not betray that constitution. But the minute the constitution comes, or the law Comes or the government comes and tells me I have to choose between my loyalty to my creator and my loyalty to my nation state, instantaneously, there is no choice to be made. My loyalty is to the one who resurrects me, who causes me to die, who created me, right? That Allah is the one, that is the one my loyalty is to. And I'm gonna say this publicly, and I want, I wish Western Muslims can also, I don't know if they can be that blunt in Canada, in uh, in France, I don't know. But if they can, they can then, you know, they, they, they can be very clear, We will not make nation state into a new religion. We will not take the idealistic concept of a nation as our new. God, you've read Benedict Anderson You know very well that these are imagined Communities, you know very well that there Is no such thing as a a nation State, it is really the collective Figment of the imagination of Whoever wants to agree to a nation state Muslims should be at the forefront Of Benedict Anderson's philosophies Muslims should be teaching their fellow Citizens about the the, the shallowness Of some of these concepts in a Wise manner, not in an unwise manner So that their fellow citizens understand where They're coming from and always re assure them that hey look even as we say this we are not talking about you know double stabbing crossing betraying we will be the best neighbors you will have in terms of morality in terms of kindness and, and, and i wish muslims would actually do that we will be the best citizens you have in terms of public peace but at the same time understand we are religious folks and we have our loyalties and our priorities and if we were to do this i think the world would be a better place that allah knows best
2: Arthur, i often find that uh muslims from america and forgive me for saying it uh, like this but muslims from america maybe sometimes don't quite appreciate uh, the the really hostile environment uh we muslims in europe face i mean i think france is at is certainly at uh, the head of this but but certainly there's an element of it a, a very big element of this here in, in the uk in the sense that uh it's not just a, a benign uh, a benign freedom uh, that is exhibited in France, where you 've got uh, comedies and you 've got you know political elites that from from time to time ridicule the faith and ridicule religion, but actually there is a uh, a more there is an assertive campaign to change Muslims but not just uh, change not just the community in general but also the children of those communities i mean Samuel Patti of course you know the actions against him were completely unacceptable from an Islamic perspective. But he was showing the cartoons in school. Um, the idea really was to desensitize the next generation of Muslims towards uh, 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 their sacred symbols and to and to make them worry less about the prophet alayhi wasalam, and make them think less about you know the Islamic uh, observances um, and and you know we, we observe uh, this sort of this tightening of the noose almost daily on, on a daily basis and you know, the next generation of this ummah is, is, is really facing what I would call an ideological battle uh, where um, they now, uh, you know, their faith, their Islam, uh, their religious place in the West is, is at stake. How would you advise a Muslim in France who observes this and sees, you know, this, um, uh, this assertive state sort of slowly uh, strangling their faith in, in, their, in their communities?
3: that's a question that i don't feel qualified to answer because once again so i've been an advocate for the last decade and a half of 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 uh, insourcing our fatawas, right these types of very very culturally sensitive questions should not even be attempted by outsiders speak to me of America and the American situation frankly even the British situation I've been to England more than a hundred times I don't think any other American there, as far as I know has been more often and stayed longer than I have so yeah. even the British situation I feel a little bit comfortable at least speaking generically about the Canadian situation I've been again more times than I can count you know those countries I feel very comfortable being a little bit more specific as for France I've only been three times I think and I agree with you, the, and of course I've met many French Muslims, I agree with you, the xenophobia, the Islamophobia is really, I don't know of any other Western country in the world that is more blatantly Islamophobic than uh, France. I don't know of any other country. And Mm -hmm. that is frightening because France has the highest percentage of Muslims in the entire Western world. Those two facts together do not bode well for the future. That's all I will say. They do not bode well if you study history and the exacerbations going on and the tit for tat. At what point do the Muslims say enough is enough? That's a very good question. I'm not qualified to answer I will simply say generically from a fiqh perspective, generically from a fiqh perspective, as long as you have the freedom to do your rituals and to avoid the major sins, there is leeway Islamically. That's all I will say. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying there's leeway Islamically, no matter how much fahisha and how much evil, Let us never forget that in Mecca, and again, Muslims don't like to think about this, right? The Quran tells us that women and men would do tawaf naked. Just think about that, okay? Mm -hmm. In broad daylight, they would, they they had their perverted ideology and whatnot. This is in Mecca, in front of the Kaaba, And because of this, no Muslim said, I cannot be here and whatnot. I have to go and flee over it. What are you going to do? Okay, it happens. You lower your gaze. You know, there is fahish everywhere. There was idolatry in Mecca. There was singing. There was women dancing. All of this is happening there, right? Uh, uh, drinking alcohol is rampant in Mecca. We know this. What are the Muslims going to do? You avoid your sins. Fattakullah And that's why we do need our clergy and our ulama to be more forceful in this regard. Unfortunately, this is one of my issues. I, I know we, we were supposed to talk about this as well. I guess we'll get there. One of my pet peeves, really, is what we... Ha- have now is a lot of overzealous, undereducated Muslims, hmm. a lot of Muslims who are, they think they're more knowledgeable of fiqh than those that have spent lifetimes studying fiqh, and rather what we find is an uber-literalism, right, a, 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 a simplistic notion of what it means to be a Muslim, their notion of Islamic laws, of sharia, their notion of siyasa of politics, it is so simplistic, you do not find ulama in their 70s and 80s, holding these views at all, nobody who's been involved in fiqh, in usul al-fiqh, in maqasid al shara', in qawait al-fiqh, nobody who studies Islamic history is going to be so naive, but this 25-year-old comes along, and if a scholar says something that doesn't fit his paradigm, oh, this guy's a sellout, oh, this guy's a, you know, softy, oh, this guy's a a left-wing, this guy's gone liberal, he doesn't know the sharia of Allah, and that's a problem, uh, which is a major problem of overzealousness amongst our youth, they're not even willing to listen to the ulama of our own community. By the way, these types of attacks, they are in fact one of the symptoms of this problem because I'm not aware of any scholar that's advocating such violence. I'm not aware of any trained jurist saying that go ahead and behead three people in the, in the, in the cathedral of Nice. I'm not aware of anybody. Where is this coming from then? This notion of our ulama are all sellouts. This notion of our scholars don't know. They're all purchased and bought. And to compound this problem, there are a group of people that do seem to be very sympathetic to despotic regimes. So like I said, we are battling so many different problems. And Allah Mustan, that's our life. Allah created us for a certain time and place, and we have to deal with the problems that are coming to us.
2: Emmanuel Macron said just under a month ago that Islam is in crisis all over the world. Um, Just to take it, if we remove the fact that Macron said it, would you agree with that sentiment, Sheikh Yasser?
3: Not, again, the adjective is too harsh, not crisis, no. I don't agree with the term crisis. Islam, Muslims around the globe are grappling with new problems. Yes, no question about that. But in fact, they have been grappling with new problems for the last century, right? And definitely different problems. Before this, they must have had other problems. But for the last century, You know, since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and since the rise of the nation states, even during colonization from the 1800s, 1900s, right? New sets of problems are coming. And the Muslim community is being tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in different ways. And we're now undergoing a new set of tests of our time. And that does require a new set of conversations and responses. I don't consider this to be a crisis. I consider this to be a searching for the truth. I consider this to be an an internal interrogation, an internal conversation um, in which Muslims will have to ask some very, very difficult questions. Our ulama will have to get involved and think about things in a very different manner. Uh, And there's going to be a diversity of responses, as is always the case. And eventually a mainstream is going to be developed. I would say for most issues, a mainstream has already developed. Crises? No. Islam is on the rise, alhamdulillah, by and large. I mean, I think that is an undeniable fact. In the streets of Karachi, you know, in the universities of Cairo, you know, across the Arab world, across the Indian Pakistani world, in Western lands, our generation is more religious than the generation of our parents. Think about that, okay? My parents came to this land in the late 60s and 70s. Hardly, in fact, let me say, I think nobody wore hijab. When my parents started the first masjid of Houston, Texas, right, the ladies only came, not that hijab is the only, you get my point, it's an indication, it's not the only point, right, I mean, most Muslims didn't even pray of that generation five times a day, you know. (laughs) My father told me that there was even a group that would pray Jumu'ah on Sunday when he came, not because they had a fiqh ruling, but because they didn't have any, any choice, they were working full time, right? And they, they they thought, okay, and you know what? Maybe even in their situation, maybe they have a back in the 50s or 60s that they're working 50 hours a week and whatnot, and the only day they have off is Sunday, right? So they would literally just do something on a Sunday to make up for juma I mean, different fiqh has come, they had to rethink through things and whatnot. I mean, alhamdulillah, we, we're beyond that stage. But to answer your question, I don't agree with the term crisis, but I do agree that we have a new set of challenges. And alhamdulillah, the Ummah has always risen to its challenges. And the Ummah is always going to succeed in the long run. We firmly believe this because of the promise of the Qur'an. I mean, لِيُظْهِرَهُ كُلِّهِ Alhamdulillah, right? So, uh, his, the, the, the light of Allah is going to shine perpetually. It's our job whether we're, we're qualified to carry the light. That's our responsibility and test. But the light will always shine.
2: Emmanuel Macron said in in the same speech that he believes Islam needs a reformation. And I think he he was speaking beyond the French Muslim context. Um, His argument is that uh, the religion of Islam needs to accept some of the European Enlightenment values. I mean, what's your take on this?
3: Again, this is a very Eurocentric, Christian-centric view of the world. Why should Muslims traverse the same path that Christianity did 500 years ago. The problems of Christianity were definitely there. They have nothing to do with the issues facing the ummah. The ummah has its problems. I'm not saying it doesn't, right? The ummah has a new set of issues. The the, the secular state and Muslims living under the secular state. The modern nation state, this is a very difficult question. How much Sharia compliant should a nation state be like Pakistan, like Saudi Arabia? These are questions that are very difficult to answer because the the goal of the Sharia was to have a Muslim land where any Muslim is the citizen and all Muslims can be a citizen. There is no country in the world that allows a Muslim to be a citizen just because you're a Muslim. Every country is representing its own. Anyway, I'll go into the tangent there, but um, uh, your point of the reformation, Again, I would say, I've said this in the past, and even this has a lot of caveats. We need to rethink through for certain groups of Muslims, perhaps, maybe, that Muslims in America, Muslims in Europe, Muslims in Canada, they need to rethink through certain aspects and, and understand how to live as minorities. Some have called this fiqh al-aqalliyat in the 80s, that was a very popular term, the fiqh of minorities, as you're aware, and others have objected to the term, and to me, Wordings are, are irrelevant. The concept is definitely valid. When you are living as a minority, right? Different situations bring about different laws of fiqh. This is universally known. It's not, nothing radical about that. Whether you call it fiqh al qaliyat or not, it doesn't really matter to me. The concept is there. That as a minority, we do need to rethink through various things about our own personal lives and interactions and, and whatnot. So if you mean by reformation, what I just said, Call it what you will, yes, okay, fine. But they don't mean that. What they mean is a complete, you know, uh, Martin Lutheresque, if you like, a, a complete radical rethinking. And of course, the Reformation of Christianity was a response to the injustices of the Catholic Church. It was a response to the intransigency, to the to the narrow mindedness, to the anti-modernistic and anti-scientific nature of the Catholic Church. We've had our problems in the Ummah, but opposing science has never been one of those problems. Okay, but he, here's the irony: when you tell a Christian, an average modern day Christian, of the Middle Ages when the Church ruled over them, they shudder like, "Oh my God!" their version. When you tell a Muslim, that when the Sharia ruled, he gets this nice smile on his face, this romanticized version of the past. Because our histories are totally different, okay? From our paradigm being very, very simplistic, but it is true to state, our best days as a civilization were when Muslims... Alhamdulillah, ruled by the laws of Islam. When there was the, you know, the early Umayyads, the Abbas's, Harun al-Rashid, okay? Those were our best days, Andalus, whatnot. We have, and it is legitimate, we have, a reason to romanticize those epochs and to say, yes, those were the good old days. Science was at an all-time high. We were the global superpower. Arabic was the lingua franca. And guess what? Islamic scholarship was at an all-time high as well. Europe never had that. When the church ruled, they were in the dark ages, right? The only people that could read and write were the clerics and priests. That's why Martin Luther comes and calls for a reformation with a capital R. Why should we as Muslims offered the solutions of Martin Luther when we never had the problems of medieval Christianity. This is a huge Eurocentric, Christocentric mistake. We don't have those problems, so our solutions are going to be different. And therefore, if by Reformation you mean what Macron means, definitely not. We don't need that Reformation because we never had the problems that Europe had.
2: Now, here in the West, the Muslim community are seen to be the problem when it comes to Western policymakers. Do we, in your mind, have something hardwired in our collective adherence to our faith to Islam that makes us harder to integrate into the modern secular nation state?
3: That's an interesting question. (laughs) No, not at all. In fact, I don't see this as even that much of a religious question as it is uh, a, a sociological one. Anytime a dominant majority is in contrast with a small minority, there are going to be tensions between the two. And the notion will come that why doesn't this small minority accept our ways and our values? Nothing new. This is the story of humanity from the day of cave dwellers, I'm sure, right? Right. Uh, when the Chinese came to this country 130 years ago, right, 1880s to 1910. And they came in small batches. They were less than, again, 0.1%. The way they were stereotyped, the caricatures drawn, the the, the, uh, the language used, okay, in the New York Times even, I have some clips and whatnot, breeding like rats. They smell. They don't know how to cook properly. They don't take baths. Why can't they learn our laws and values and whatnot. And of course, all of these were such exaggerated tropes, right? This is a simple sociological problem that the dominant majority always feels a bit of a threat when a minority comes with different cultures, different society, different, you know, whatever. But they don't realize that there is no stagnation in culture and society. This is a hu- simple human history throughout all of humanity. You know, cultures keep on evolving. Uh, customs change, mores uh, you know, uh, are uh, adapted. And every time a new mix is added, a new spice is added, it will affect the majority without even them recognizing it. So Americans think that they have a stagnated culture and nothing could be further from the truth. The same goes to England. The England, the racists of England, they want to go back to, you know, some glorious mythical past, whatnot. In reality, they have a snapshot of 1985, let's say, okay, when they were children. And they think that is all of England. But 1985 was radically different than 1955 in England, right? Which was different than 1935 and so on and so forth. So I don't think at all that Muslims are in any way different. However, you ask a blunt question, I'll give you a blunt answer and I say this as a loving, faithful, alhamdulillah, Muslim, we do have something that is alien to the modern Western psyche, and that is strong religion. It terrifies them. They don't have it. They've lost it. They used to have it once upon a time. Frankly, ironically, during the time of the Crusades, let's say, Muslims and Christians could actually understand each other better, even if they killed one another, right, than our times, because The West has lost, by and large, faith in God. Even those that go to church do not actually firmly believe in their religion to the point of it impacting their lifestyles, to the point of them actually living like Jesus wanted them to live. They're very small amongst them who are actually faithful to the values of their religion. They're there, of course, but especially in Europe, what, less than 1%? Even one would be too much, I think, okay? Who would actually sacrifice something for the sake of their God and the sake of their faith. So when they come across us and by and large, alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah, iman is strong in the hearts of the ummah. They find it alien to their understanding because their understanding is hayat dunya. Their understanding is they want this dunya with all of its glory and they're not thinking of an akhirah. And by and large, even the non-practicing Muslims amongst us, they have a sense of, okay, there's a heaven and hell, there's a resurrection, I have a next life to think about. And there is a sense of iman that is going to flare up during these times of crises of the cartoons and whatnot, where people are going to react in this manner. So I don't think it's any hardwiring. I think it's basic sociology, basic history, basic human psychology, and the divide between a heart that doesn't understand faith and a heart that is upon faith. And Allah knows best.
2: JazakAllah khair. I mean, that's a really interesting answer, and it really is, um, uh, puts a lot of things into perspective. Um, can, I, can I unpick that a little bit further? Um, you've got many communities here in in britain in france in across europe you've got hindu communities jewish communities you've got uh polish christian communities who are quite uh, they're, they're strong believers they they've revived the catholic church here in the uk for polish community yet uh the the extent to which government policies interact with those communities and governments despair at the lack of integration uh, in from those communities is it's minuscule right the government does not uh, worry about those communities like they worry about the muslim community and you say it's the religious aspect but is there something is, is there something deeper here i mean for you know you you made reference to how we view our past uh, shadi hamid talks about the founding moment of islam and how islam is uh, it's antagonistic to the whole notion of secularism we don't, uh, we as believers, we have a notion of an ummah, a global Muslim community. We have a view about our faith which transcends the religious, the so-called religious and spiritual to every aspect of our lives, whether it's economics or political or whatever it may be. You know, we, we have a, uh, a, a deen which, and, a, and, a, and an attraction to our ummah which doesn't sit... Uh, very neatly into the modern secular nation state. So is it is it less about just those religious adherences and more about, maybe there is a hardwiring there. There is a...
3: I don't like the term hardwiring, but I agree with you, believe it or not, <laughs> in that there is something about our faith that is different from Christianity. And that's very simple. It's obvious. It's self-evident. It is the fact that we have a sharia. We have laws that dictate down to the smallest minutia, and that we also have small percentage of our laws that are meant to be applied at a community level, i.e., society. Okay, you have to, of course, take into account that Christianity was shorn of all of that. You know, since the time of Paul, Paul comes along and says, you know, uh, you know the the, the famous um, uh, incident. Um, is it in corinthians or whatnot where basically you don't have to circumcise if you believe in jesus forget the covenant of abraham you know the symbol was was that you know every single faithful child you know of the abrahamic tradition is going to maintain as a circumcision was the issue that came up uh and uh, paul basically says no belief in jesus is the law and therefore from the very beginning christianity went a different path of course Polish Catholics can fit in to secular Europe far easier than we can because there is very little that is really at odds, very little. And you find this in abortion, in LGBT, very small areas. If you really want a comparison, what you need is the Hasidic Jews. What you need is the Hasidim. What you need is the ultra-Orthodox, right? That's where you will find, believe it or not, quite a lot of similarities between us and them and the laws that they have and the fact that they are, by and large, isolated from society, they have their own schools, they have their own internal court systems, right? In America, at least, I'm not sure. Actually, there is one in England, Beit I know that. I, I did my research on this, right? Uh, they have their, their, their communities that they live in. And by and large, they come out of their bubble to earn money, and then they go back into their bubble. They are not mainstream integrated the way that the West wants. No lady drives. Everybody has to wear the heads covering. This is not Sharia. This is halakha. This is the Jewish law being applied on them. But see, here is where we point out the double standards. Is that why is it that those communities get very little attention? They get to live under the radar. Why is it that there's a quid pro quo? You know, you be who you are, we'll let you be who you are. And yet for our communities, there's so much happening. Now they would say, because of the violence and whatnot, right? all that we're asking for is that those communities that choose to live different lifestyles, that choose to live somewhat on the fringes of society, should be allowed to do so. And that's, again, its contextual basis. In America, once again, I speak as an American, we definitely have the freedoms to to do that. And the Amish have done it. And the Hasidic have done this. And in the 1980s, by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, there was a group of Muslims that tried to do this. They called it Darul Islam in New Mexico. They actually purchased, you know, grew a land and hundreds of families. This was a Sufi tariqah. Hundreds of families came down there and they actually started a new city called Dar al-Salaam. And it's still around to this day, but it's very small people. They left and whatnot. And the government allowed them. As long as there's no militancy, as long as you're not going berserk and whatnot, you have the freedom to do that. So again, my position is very straightforward. Why are we asked to quote unquote integrate when it's not a part of the requirements of the law? Why can't we live on the fringes, those that choose to do so, by the way, right? Me personally, you know, I am definitely somebody who does not agree to those ghettoizations. I don't think that is healthy for the community. And I think that we should live in society and be a part of society. And uh, some have called my version modern orthodox, but that's like all of these terms are, are, you know, I don't know if you're aware of modern orthodox of or the Jewish community, but you know, these are all terms that have their pros and cons. I mean, in the sense, I believe in the Sharia, but I also believe in living in the modern world. That's what some one reporter described me like that, but all of these terms are meaningless. Um. To, to, to answer your question simplistically, why is integration a condition? And to what level of integration? Let the law come and tell me, by court cases, this is the minimum requirement, and let it apply to every single community without exception, and then we can discuss, and by and large, if the courts were to do this, I actually trust that in America, in Canada, in England, in the majority of western countries maybe minus France, that what they would say would actually be reasonable and we would be able to live up to those expectations and Allah knows
0: best.
2: Yes, I mean I was speaking to Ismail Royer from the States uh, about the Benedict option which is very much uh, the idea that uh, we should move away from from society and and set up our own communities to build distinct qualities within within our our community. Uh, the problem we've got here in Europe, and I, I think Britain is, is moving slowly, but it's moving in the direction of France. The problem we have here is the governments of, of all hues are are now uh, concentrating on uh, the, the, the idea of Islamic separatism. I mean, you see Macron talked about that in his original speech. And it's now becoming much more difficult for Muslims to even set up very modest uh, forms of uh, of separation in order to build the faith of their community members. You know, just simple acts of having uh, weekend uh, schools or having uh, uh, madrasas uh, or um, uh, Islamic schools are, are now seen to be acts of separatism. And uh, Muslim, uh, you know, it's back to that idea that the noose is slowly being tightened, and and it's now becoming very difficult for a Muslim parent. Uh, to exhibit uh, or to show uh, autonomy over their children, and and to have autonomy over how their children should be raised, because the state uh, wants to intervene, and the state uh, has has now introduced an, a, a series of laws which specifically, you know, it, it may it may these laws may cover all communities, but they specifically target the Muslim community. You know, it, in such a hostile environment. Uh, well, how how would you advise? I mean, again, y- y- your perspective would be: I'm, I'm in America, and, and Muslims in Britain need to work it out. You know, in, but you know, from from your perspective, if that happened to Muslim communities in America, how, what would your your stance be towards that?
3: We don't want to be uh, the proverbial frog in the boiling pot, if you get the analogy. Mm. We don't want to be, you know, the one that the, the changes keep on happening, and we don't realize the changes until it's too late. Mm. Okay, and then we are no longer existent. And what is happening in France. So one of the reasons why. I have been so vocal about the French issue. Is that I believe. This is the canary in the coal mine. I believe. That France. Is an issue that all Western Muslims in particular. Need to be extremely. Cognizant of. And then involved with. Because. If France succeeds, it will become a role model for all of the far right parties. Now, in America in particular, because again, you guys don't even have a constitution the way we do. In America, this would really be very, very, very difficult because our constitution, no, I mean, you you cannot, I mean, as of yet, you know, even even during the war of terror and everything and whatnot, generally speaking, you could not go to jail. There was a few cases, whatnot, but generally speaking, you were not imprisoned for saying something that was politically incorrect, okay? Uh, One or two cases of actual incitement was deemed, but that's a different story. But I mean, generally speaking, I mean, you could criticize the government, you could criticize the troops, you could do whatnot. We do have a very different system in our country. However, for European Muslims in particular, France is very worrying. Mm. Very worrisome. And I think all of us should be aware and speak out and put um, pressure. And I, again, I'm not qualified to tell French Muslims when they should think of packing their bags and leaving. But I will say one thing. I was speaking with a French activist yesterday yesterday, who's founded one of the largest um, uh, Islam, anti-Islamophobic um, organizations, an umbrella organization uh, with over 100,000 Muslims involved, basically, you know, collectively. And he said something that to me indicates... One of our biggest problems. He said 70 to 80% of the French Muslims do not even vote. Now you tell me, you have in France, maybe 8% of the population is Muslim, and Paris alone maybe up to 15% is Muslim. That's like one out of every nine people, one out of every eight people is Muslim in Paris, right? And the majority of them are not even voting. What do you want? You, like the frustration that I feel, right, that that mentality is so prevalent to me. How can you possibly have Islamophobia so rampant when 15 percent of Paris is Muslim? Ask yourself that question.
2: It's been a really fascinating interview, uh, Dr. Yasir Qadhi. And um, I want to really end by asking uh, about scholarship in general, um, Now, there's a a growing sentiment in the ummah, and and maybe it's unfair and maybe it's unwarranted. And forgive me for asking the question in such a way, but there is a growing sentiment that that argues that once a scholar reaches some level of fame or notoriety, uh, they uh, become apolitical. Uh, Maybe that's because fame becomes the goal and the plight of the ummah takes a back seat. Uh, but but again this is not really directed towards you and we've we've spoken about a very political topic today. But isn't there a basic truth in that criticism?
3: That's a very awkward question because I know most of the duat and I, I know, you know, I'm friends with many of the, the people around the world that are involved. I can't speak for them. Look, layyukalifullah <sighs> nafsan illa wussa'ah, you know? I mean not everybody's living in the same circumstances that that I am and, and there is Western privilege by the way. There is American privilege. My passport, I was born here. That is also a privilege. Had I been uh, you know, nationalized, I had acquired nationality, I would not be at the same level in terms of privilege, okay? I have had no other citizenship. That is also a privilege that I, you know, nothing can happen you know, to my citizenship you know, unless Allah rules a radical change of the constitution what whatnot. Nothing can happen to affect my citizenship the way that the laws of the land stand. Being who I am, With my privilege, with my background, I have taken a course of action and I do not regret it. I cannot expect somebody from other countries to take the same stance. So I have been very vocal about scholarship not being tainted by politics, i.e. not getting their funding from politics and not being subservient to political regimes. I have been very vocal that scholars keep the politicians in check and not the other way around. That having been said, I, I had a Facebook post when the um, uh, Arab Spring was happening, and I categorized scholars into five categories. Okay? And I said that really, you know, the, the first three or four we should, we should you know, tolerate, it's only the last category that we should really be angry about. And that category are the rubber stampers. They're the ones who, for all intents and purposes, have sold their souls to the highest bidder. And they are validating, you know, the, the Rabia massacre. They're validating, you know, the, you know, shooting upon innocent protesters and whatnot. I have lost all respect for that group of clergy because to me, they have sold their religion for a measly profit. They neither gained this dunya nor the akhirah unless they repent. That's the group we should criticize. I actually category four in my list was actually those that speak generically in praise of the status quo, but not necessarily in praise of the ruler. And I said that even those we should excuse, because we see they're coming from the notion that civil war is worse than civil war is worse than status quo. Mm. And if you look at the Arab Spring, you can see where they're coming from. OK? Syria, uh, Egypt and other lands. And and you can tell category four and five from their wordings. Those that say, no, we should obey the ruler, no, we should keep society peaceful, is not the same as saying fire on the protesters, right? There's a clear market difference between four and five, even though there might be a gray area, right? The first three categories were basically those that were not supportive. The third category was quietists, complete apolitical. Those that are base, basically teaching Tahara and Wudu and Salah and al Wudu and Sahih Bukhari and Aqidah and whatnot. And I said, you know what, guys, we need people to do that even in the thick and thin of war. And you don't know their situation, you don't know their imam level, you don't know their family circumstances, you don't, as long as they're not in category five, they have an excuse in the eyes of Allah. Because you see, <laughs> Again, I get this so much trouble. May Allah protect all of us. Ya Scholars are human beings. We need to stop idealizing and idolizing our ulama. Just because you go to an Islamic university and study there for five years, 10 years, 15 years, it doesn't change your humanity. There are brave scholars. There are cowards among scholars. There are corrupt scholars. There are pious scholars. There are scholars that are tempted by money. There are scholars that are never tempted. There are scholars that fall prey to women. And there are scholars that, alhamdulillah, can... So just because you studied Islam doesn't make you an angel. Just like every other profession. Now, the masses would hope that every alim is like Ibn Taymiyyah or Ibn Hajar or al-Tabari or Ibn al salam or these great ulama. But we know, everybody who's been through this knows, us who have been in the communities of scholarships, all people who have studied Islam know that studying Islam does not necessarily make you pious at all, at all. Uh, and again, I have horror stories. Everybody has horror stories. But for the sake of the masses, let's not say that. We all know, simply entering an Islamic institution, there were people that were studying in our institutions for the sake of a government post and job. They had no they had no reason, because in that country you would get a position. They failed engineering, they failed mathematics, they failed medicine, and they got into Sharia. And they're, everybody knew, like their lifestyle and what they did, the sins and whatnot. Eh, I'm just going to get a government job after this. They, they didn't care. They're in the same classes as us, right? getting the same education as us, but their iman is at a totally different level. And it's terrifying. Some of these people are going to end up as professors in the same institutions. Some of them will end up as Islamic judges in that country, okay, et cetera, et cetera. And we know how they were because we, 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 we interacted with them, right? doesn't mean anything. If you go and spend five or 10 years, for some people, it really is just a, a means to an end of a job or fame or whatnot. So I am not critical of those who choose any of the first four categories. The first was the anti-government. And I said, I'm not I'm not of that paradigm because I really think it's foolish right now, but I, I allow them to be who they are. The second, which is my camp, that's the one I like, is critical but still not militant. I identify with that camp completely, okay? I do not like any of the despotic regimes of the Middle East, not a single one of them. And the kingdoms of the oil-rich countries, I despise what they have done in the last few years and I'm a vocal critic but I do not call for the unsheathing of the sword I do not call for a revolution because every single king has been worse than the previous one the king that was there when I was studying we all of us used to say what an evil man and what not in comparison to the modern guys he looks like a walking angel and a saint okay that guy actually respected the ulama in the sense he would not openly oppose them and he verbal outwardly, etc. I mean, he can give you a million stories, right? So every, so that's the second group. The third was apolitical, right? And the fourth, I said, were those that were mildly supportive of status quo, but not the, not the individual, not the regime. It's only the fifth that I have no respect for. The first four, in my opinion, we let ulama fit into their place, and Allah will be their judge. And here's my point to you as well. You might be critical of category you know, three, But what would happen if in a tyrannical regime, all the ulama that were in categories one and two were locked and chained up and even maybe whatnot, you know? Wouldn't you want somebody to teach your kids about Quran and do the basic fatiha and, you know, wouldn't you need that? So take a broader perspective and understand. And I've always tried to do this in my answers of fatawa, of fiqh, of siyasa. Don't just give my opinion. Take a step back and look at the positions that the ummah needs, even if I disagree with those positions, right? We have to be broad-minded enough to actually accept that diversity is healthy for the ummah to a certain level. And my concern is not my opinion. It is where does that diversity become problematic. That has always been my concern when it comes to the positions, when it comes to the speakers and preachers. That's why I personally don't generally criticize specific individuals by name, even if I find their views to be too extreme or too liberal or whatnot unless it is genuinely problematic otherwise i'm actually embracing the importance of a diver it's good that some people are fanatical about aqidah fanatical about dressing the way they do fanatical about it's good in its own way we need that little bit of, of dosage in the um we need that one percent and it's good that there's others that are on the you know good meaning from a sociological perspective right not a theological one there are some very interesting characters in England and America and Belgium and whatever, they're preaching neo Mu'tazili versions of Islam. Okay. I don't agree with them on a theological perspective, but I say from a sociological perspective, their existence actually does serve a purpose, even as I disagree.
2: Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Let me come back to uh, uh, a point you made earlier on in that answer. um, When you said that, um, you know, the, the, the situation could be worse if we. Uh, if we try to change the status quo uh, you know and, and I agree you know militancy has failed and it 's not going to change the status quo to a uh, in a in a uh, uh, in a, an appropriate direction, but then how do we move on from here? The Muslim world is in a mess you know our our history and our belief system and our religion tells us that uh, the ummah is, uh, is one community and we're one political community. As you said earlier on in, in today's discussion, uh, you know, there was a time when uh, we didn't think in a nation-state, from a nation-state perspective, we thought about ourselves as part of this political ummah, as part of his one big, one holistic community. How do we uh, move away from the dire state of the Muslim world to something better if we're not going to take a stand against these regimes?
3: That's the million-dollar question. And mm. my opinion is no more accurate or predictive than any other person's. We are all in this together. We have been thinking about this issue for the last hundred years, right? And because of this question, multiple groups and parties have come from Deoband to Tabligh, to Hizb ut tahrir to Ikhwan muslimin to Jamaat e islami you know, to the Salafis and Wahhabis. You have the entire gamut of opinions. And even within every party, each one is trying to do its own good. I don't think there is one unilateral decision that is going to be effective. Hmm. I don't think anybody is going to figure out this question and then go and change it. If change is going to occur, it might even be a result of hapstance, circumstance, Allah's qadr. It might just occur without even the meticulous planning that was actually many of the groups were doing it. So I have a different philosophy vis-à-vis all of these movements. And that is, fi there's good in all of these mainstream movements, and it's good that one group is fanatically talking about the khilafa, khilaf, khilafa all the time. Anything happens, the Khilafah, you know what? Keep keep you know, keep talking and remind us there is something that we're not going to negate that reality. But in the meantime, there are people dying. I need to save them. In the meantime, people's imans are getting lost. I need to save them. It's good that others are aqida, aqida, Aqeedah. Aqeeda. Okay, we understand Tawheed is important. Let's always talk about that as well. So, my perspective is Let each person find his or her passion. Let them do what they're doing within the bulk and the mainstream. And at the same time, let us, inshallah, those that are more mature and wise, take a step back and realize this is a massive jigsaw puzzle. And everybody's doing certain things as long as it's done under the rubric of Islam. I don't think anybody can answer your question definitively. And in fact, maybe there is no definitive answer. Maybe. In which case, and this is where those that are on the khilafat they really get irritated at me. But I believe this. This is my perception. Our priorities really should be to do what we can to enter Jannah. <inaudible> Whoever protects himself from the fire of hell and enters Jannah, that is the victorious person. I don't, Allah is not going to ask me about the global situation single-handedly. But Allah will ask me about my personal piety about my influence on my family and kids, about my community service, about what I did with what the tools that I have is. So because of this, not because I don't agree that there should be a political system where we have to get involved with the regimes. If you look at my khutbas and whatnot, I'm very politically motivated. I understand some people find my answer very frustrating and they think I'm the cause of the problems and whatnot. So be it. I don't need their approval to enter Jannah. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who will judge. And I am a firm believer that Allah will ask us what we have done, given our means and circumstance. That's it.
2: Sheikh Yassikhar, you've been very kind with your time. If I may just squeeze in one last question. Uh, the world is changing, Sheikh, and uh, we're seeing now the rise of populism. We're seeing the rise of, of nativism. Uh, the the old standards of globalism have disappeared and, and countries are putting up barriers against one another. There is a, a cultural assertion within each and every country, in your country, in America, there's the rise of white nativism and, and who knows, Donald Trump may win the next election. And and that's very possible. I mean, even though opinion polls say otherwise, it's still very plausible that uh, there, there is a lot of fire in and energy in uh, in that constituency. With all of this going on and with what's happening in France and, and our situation uh, across the West and, and the more precarious position we find ourselves in, Al Asir Qadi, do you have hope for the future of this Ummah?
3: Definitely. That question, definitely. Hope for the future of the Ummah, definitely. Hope for the future of a particular segment of the Ummah, that's a different thing. Segments, nation-states, particular communities. Allah knows what's going to happen. Andalus worked out the way that it did. Okay, mass conversions, forced conversions, or... Uh, being sent away to north africa as we're all aware millions of muslims not a trace left of islam even though muslim civilization remained is it possible that that is replicated in modern times Hmm. given the current circumstances in 2020 inshallah i can say i don't think so but see who could have predicted world war ii and the effects of world war ii nobody things change dramatically Right? And is it possible, given a few more changes, that something like this could happen in some countries? Yes. Yes, it is possible. And my fear is that we are heading in that direction. The world has not been under a global war for two generations. People have short memories, and people don't learn from history. And unfortunately, the way things are headed globally... Personally, I am a little bit scared for myself and my children. After I put my trust in Allah, that Allah will protect, but I'm allowed to be scared for reasonable precautions. You get my point. Not scared in a theological sense, but worried is maybe a better term, not than scared. I am worried about the rise of these trends and these types of incidents that we're seeing in France. World War I was started with one assassination bullet between parties that were already at the cusp of antagonism. People don't study history, and therefore they are doomed to repeat it. We are headed in a very worrisome direction across the world. The far-right parties, Brazil with Bolsonaro, Modi in, uh, in India, Uh, trump and his ilk and whether he's going to even step down peacefully which might be another catalyst okay in israel as well no matter how we don't like the apartheid regime but we have to also comment on their their um their realities that the far right has become entrenched in israeli politics as well you know even though from our perspective all of them are a type of right but still not all right is the same you have far 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 right and you have others across the globe this nativism as you said I'm sorry, Canada, just barely lost. You know, Trudeau, we are loving Trudeau. But remember, his opponent, it wasn't a victory that was like a clear-cut victory, okay? And his opponent was essentially the equivalent of Trump. Mm -hmm. So it is worrisome, which is why every single Muslim needs to get involved beyond just personal, you know, selfishness. Every Muslim should do his or her part. Otherwise... When whatever happens, happens, we have no one to blame, you know, because we, did, we didn't do our job. So, do I have hope for the Ummah? Definitely. Why do I have hope for the Ummah? Because Allah told me to. It's theological. And also because we see a revival. The fact that, alhamdulillah, millions of people are genuinely passionate and believing about their religion is a positive sign. Even the fanaticism, we criticize it, right? We criticize it. But it is coming from a heart that has a skewed belief of the faith, but it is still a belief of the faith. You understand? I'm not, I'm not condoning at all. But it is still coming from some type of of yani, whatever. You know like, No, you're not going to insult me because I'm like you know. I mean, at least they are. Again, I shouldn't say this. There's no condoning, but even fanaticism is coming from, as I said, a misinterpretation. But it is still coming from something that is of the uh, uh, of the faith. So on the Overall side, Islam is on the rise, which is why it is so threatening to Macron and others because they don't have the equivalent. They do not have that faith-based equivalent. The only alternative is nativism. The only alternative is uh, the theocratization, sorry, of the nation-state, okay? To make the nation-state God, to make the values of the nation-state worth fighting over, that's what they're doing now, okay? Okay, to make the symbol of the nation state that which is protected, to bring the past of the nation state to be the romantic, romantic glorious past, they are theocratizing the nation state. Their God is the country now that they're going to defend till they die. That's the only alternative. And of course, that comes with fascism. That comes with a new version of militancy that we are seeing now. What the future holds, Allah knows best. But if things continue this way, I think Muslims in Europe in particular, need to think long and hard, especially of France, about what they're doing and their future goals. I'm not saying they should leave, but I'm saying they cannot remain blissfully, naively cut off from the rest of society. That's my my takeaway message. Get involved. Do something. Be active. Renew your faith and then become active in the society you live in in every aspect possible. That is the least that we can do. And if we do that, even if we don't succeed, as a political entity, inshallah, we would have succeeded in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is the ultimate success.
2: Dr. Yasir Qadi, Jazakallah khair for your time today. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you for your efforts and uh, keep you strong and keep you on uh, the path of iman and the path of truth. Uh, Jazakallah khair, inshallah.
3: Jazakallah khair for having me. I actually had a very interesting conversation and I look forward to uh, future conversations. Well, you had some very pertinent questions. Generally speaking, your questions were far more meticulous and thought out and provocative and and needed and I appreciated that and uh, uh, I understand that this is going to generate more questions and interviews and whatnot, so so be it Bismillah I look forward to being with you for a round two inshallah as well Jazakumullah khair
2: wabarakatuh I really think that was a great interview and and there were some really thought-provoking responses from uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Uh, As always, it'd be great to get your comments. You can comment on our websites, thinkingmuslim.com. Please do find out more about uh, the podcast and uh, to access our archive, either go to our website or go to any of the podcast players. Also, be wonderful if you can comment on the Apple podcast app so that we uh, can be listened to by many more listeners. But until next week, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.